F-R. BostonFreeRadio.com tuning in my name is guillermo hamlin i am the host of the guaucast here on boston free radio i know him as a humanist scholar i know him as an effective communicator and speaker um, but today we're going to be talking about a few subjects and ultimately just free speech how, how, how do we parse free speech from assholes and how do we defend free speech without being one? Uh, so James, uh, tell me a little bit more about yourself. So hello everyone, I'm James Croft. I'm currently the Outreach Director of the Ethical Society of St. Louis. The Ethical Society of St. Louis is a humanist congregation in St. Louis, Missouri. And that means we do everything that a traditional religious congregation does, except the God or religion part. So we don't have a scripture, we don't have a dogma, we don't have a set of beliefs that everyone's required to believe, but we do have the supportive community, we do have Sunday morning gatherings where there's music and a talk about the challenges of life and how we can get through it together. We have educational programs and potlucks and social programs and service activities and activism. So we do basically everything a church does just from a humanist perspective. So no God or traditional religious beliefs, just human beings trying to get through life together. I grew up very religious and we were embraced by the, the missionary evangelical uh, wing of Christianity. What then, you know, through a series of just, I would say devotion, I'd say devotion to Christianity led me to its history its formulations as a, um, you know, in divinity claims and philosophy. Ultimately, I made my way out via Quakerism or, or, or uh, being a friend. And looking back, I'm thinking there was a lot of dynamics in play that allowed for something of such devotion to take place, uh, whether it be the ritualistic or the communal. I feel like you tap into that, you know, and when it comes to humanism, you say it's similar to that of any other organized religion, but from my reading of it, uh, is this still a case that uh, humanists identify it as more of a life stance rather than a religious or um, divinity or establishment clause claim? Honestly, that's going to be different for each of our members. We are a non-creedal congregation, which means that we don't require our members to believe any particular thing, and we don't ask them about their beliefs, religious or otherwise, when they join our community. So some people see the ethical society and the humanism they practice there as their religious path. And they'll talk about it as their religion, just a non-theistic religion without a set scripture or prophet or set of texts that everyone has to read and follow. Many of our other members don't think of it as a religion. They think of it as, as you say, a life stance or a philosophy which helps guide our lives. The similarity between what we do and traditional religions is that we try to present a coherent philosophical perspective 
that helps us grapple with the big spiritual, existential, ethical challenges which human beings face as we move through life. And Christian congregations do that. Mosques do that. Synagogues do that. They're places where people get together to ask big questions about life. The difference is that we don't promote belief in a deity and we don't require people to believe the same things about religion. So we're a sort of pluralistic community in that regard. So I think that's a good segue. Not necessarily. This is something I want to return to. I, I want um, I want humanism to more or less inform the series of conversations we're going to have. A very prominent non-theist, he's a scholar, he's a, he's a communicator, uh, public intellectual, Sam Harris. He recently dipped from Patreon, citing, I believe it's political retaliation for Patreon, uh, Patreon content creators in a dis where it's skewing disproportionately rightward citing um i think his name is sargon of uh cod or whatever i don't know his name um nor do i necessarily care to uh promote his work on my program because i promote my own work on my own program uh but that being said it, um what would then follow is um jordan peterson dave rubin people who more or less skew to a certain lexicon of activity and thoughts they're trying to make a stink of Patreon. Uh, myself, our program is on Patreon where we have had no issue and, and we do delve deep into specific series of topics and we ourselves are open to entire political spectrum. So is there any way you can inform us? Like, you know, because we're adults here. If you could really summarize as to what took place and why is it meaningful for the conversations of free speech uh, platforms, the terms and conditions of these platforms, and ultimately what it takes to be an effective communicator and what comes of the consequences of doing so? Yeah, I think this is a complex and interesting question, particularly people who are atheists, agnostics, humanists in that sort of skeptic arena, because Sam Harris and some of the other voices, people like Sargon of Akkad, are pretty well known within those communities. And so when they do things like this, it's probably worth investigating them and asking ourselves what's going on. So as I understand it, Patreon has been under pressure for some time to introduce some more stringent content standards and to remove some creators who make significant amounts of money or did on Patreon from the platform for promoting what they feel are racist or homophobic or otherwise problematic beliefs. And recently, Patreon did do that, removing Sargon of Akkad, an atheist YouTuber, and a number of other figures from the platform for things that they did in the content that they were promoting there. And in response to this, Sam Harris and some others decided to step away from the Patreon platform, saying in the case of Sam Harris, at least that he was unhappy with the political bias being shown, what he viewed as a political bias being shown by Patreon, and clearly concerned that his work might be targeted, that there was a sort of arbitrariness, that his his stream of money that he's getting from that was not necessarily safe from that sort of action. And this has raised a big sort of debate about free speech and what it means and what companies can legitimately do to regulate who promotes things on their platform. And I think that it, it has become a relatively confused conversation, honestly, because people very often misunderstand what free speech is and what it means. And first, I want to say that I think freedom of speech is an incredibly important 
democratic values. It is essential that we protect people's ability to express their ideas and opinions because it is through the exchange of ideas and opinions that we improve the concepts that we use to make sense of the world and that we uh, advance in our understanding of reality. And historically, it has often been the case that the state or powerful social groups have limited the speech of minorities and further oppressed minority groups by preventing them from exploring issues that are important to their survival and flourishing. So I'm thinking of things like the first gay pride marches, which were uh, very often sanctioned or attempted to be repressed on college campuses and in towns and things like that. That was a genuine attack on people's freedom of speech. And it was important to have a principle like the freedom of speech to be able to fight those attacks. So I'm a huge supporter of freedom of speech, and I consider myself a political liberal, someone who supports people's individual rights and freedoms. So I have no problem with freedom of speech per se. What I do have a problem with is the unusually narrow and self-serving understanding of free speech, which people like Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson and other people who are associated with what's now called the intellectual dark web are employing to try and defend absolutely outrageous behavior by people who share some of their political concerns. So in this instance, Patreon was deciding not to host on their platform a series of content creators who in their minds breached the terms and conditions of that platform. And I think it's perfectly reasonable for a company like Patreon, which is providing people a service as long as they fulfill certain conditions to enforce those conditions. Patreon is not a government. They don't have the power to legally censor what these individuals are saying. They were not removing people's YouTube videos or stopping people from expressing their views in blog posts and articles. They merely were saying, if you wish to create that sort of content, then you cannot do so on our platform. And I don't think that that is meaningfully an infringement on anyone's freedom of speech. I think that that is a reasonable limitation by a content hosting platform on what sort of content they are willing to host. And honestly, I, I think that really any content hosting platform like that can have any rules it wants about whatever, even if they were explicitly political, even if Patreon said, actually, we're only going to host left-wing content creators, I'm sure that would infuriate right-wing content creators, but I don't think it would be morally wrong. And Patreon is not beholden to its content creators for its terms and conditions. And so I'm, I would say I'm confused, but I, I think that the criticisms made of Patreon by people like Sam Harris, Jordan Peterson, etc., do not have a strong philosophical basis in, in terms of an attempt to defend free speech. I think rather their attempts to reinforce their particular political project, which I think is based on this maximalist understanding of freedom of inquiry without consequence, without the ability of people to respond to what they've said and what they're doing um, and to say that they, they might be wrong. And I, I don't agree with them on that. 
in some way, I, I kind of see it as right-wing political correctness in the private sector. I, I see a lot of these uh, right-wing content creators are now complaining about the mechanisms of the free market, something that they used to cherish and behold, and they still pay lip service to it. It's like, oh, they can do whatever they want. However, the precedent sense, and I agree to the extent that uh, the precedent set allows for a subsequent um, reconfiguration of terms and conditions that, you know, it, it, I agree if it were the case, as you stated earlier, and I, you succinctly said it amazing. I, I couldn't have said it better myself. What I think that what myths them even more so is the fact that they began as a content creator adopting some form of income or stream. So there's that dependency. And then by reconfiguring the terms and conditions that all but really, I wouldn't say select. I mean, if you're going to, if you're, if you're engaging or flirting with hateful content, hateful speech, even if it's done in a very flippant um, taboo and a deliberately uh, nihilistic way, it's, it's going to be flagged more than not. So in some ways, I feel like it's, uh, it's like watching people, racists, be offended that they're being misunderstood. But at the same time, society still needs to function beyond their very narrow offense or their narrow uh, propriety being uh, you know, trampled on. And, and as you said earlier, it's, it's a platform that they can decide anything they want. Now, the real thing that comes with this is like, do we support Sam Harris selectively defending these types of content creators that are getting miffed and not necessarily going to bat for others that may be a little bit blue, but they're not really filling, as you stated earlier, their own political interests? Because a lot of it seems to be circulating around the same sort of talk within the intellectual dark web, which a lot of them vary in their political spectrum. Is there any pressure for defending um, people who get deplatformed, especially for engaging taboo topics, being nihilistic in the way that they deride um, cultures, ethnicities, uh, religious minorities, in the way that they approach in their speech, that borders hateful content, may itself be hateful content, or could be misconstrued as hateful content? Well, I think first, Sam Harris and any other content creator has every right to take their content wherever they want to take it, right? I don't think he is necessarily doing something bad by deciding to leave Patreon per se. He can go and produce his stuff wherever he wants to produce it, and he can say whatever he likes about it. I think that where I have a criticism of what he and people like Jordan Peterson are doing and saying is that they are creating a narrative out of it. And I think you've put it well when you say it's right-wing political correctness. They're creating a narrative about it, which stresses this idea of an intolerant left, which is shutting down the expression of different opinions because it doesn't like what those opinions are saying. Now that does happen. Like there are extreme cases of where that has actually occurred. And there has been some legitimate academic inquiry, which has been prevented by people who have not, I think, sufficiently appreciated the importance of protecting freedom of inquiry on college campuses, for instance. But the narrative that is being created by intellectual dark web figures around that is way overblown. I mean, they make it 
almost talk about it as almost as if it is the threat which society is facing right now. Like the biggest issue that we have to focus on as a community, as a country, is leftist activists deplatforming Milo. And I think that it's that ridiculous overreaction to something that is in itself actually quite defensible in the case of someone like Milo that I think is really unusual and it leads me to question their motives i don't know why you would i don't think there's a principled reason why you would go to bat for someone like milo's quotes right to speak on a college campus and i don't think that their reasons hold any water when you actually investigate them and so i kind of start questioning well why are you doing that and it is very interesting to note that these figures have become increasingly prominent the more they have stepped out of what might be considered mainstream cultural liberalism into this taboo-breaking liberalism where they very uh, aggressively assert their right to explore topics like supposed racial gaps in IQ or biological differences um, in capability in different areas between men and women and things like that. And it's just this continual return to these topics that have profound sociopolitical implications and the championing, the championing of people who are on the very fringes of that discourse that makes me really skeptical that, that they're acting in good faith there. That's the best way to describe it. I am very skeptical that they are operating in good faith. In many ways, I feel that it... So I, I'm also a content creator. I'm also... So in many ways, I understand the desire to broaden one's uh, appeal, uh, network, outreach, because in this line of work, I'm willing to talk to anybody as long as they operate in good faith. I think when it comes to Sam Harris, he has enough of a speaking circuit backing. He has wealth behind him. He has the academic prestige, you know, sufficient, uh, you know, insufficient or not. He, he, he more or less can do this. When it comes to people like Dave Rubin and Jordan Peterson, who are like new at this, it, it, it kind of, I think it's more so in their case, because Dave Rubin, in many ways, has this form of, this is me just being very, um, uh, polite, he kind of has this kind of aimless, sycophantic relationship with the intellectual dark webites of the internet. It, 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 in no real way does he stand for anything that I find to be substantially heroic or anything that has much of a narrative behind it. In the case of Jordan Peterson, he has 12 rules of life. He has his videos. And in many ways, he's reinvented himself a few. He's reinvented himself a few times, where I can understand his focus because he's just trying to sell his book. He's trying to be global, and in many ways, a lot of his um, the way he approaches his uh, book, the way it applies to things, even though it reinforces this social conservatist, uh, the social conservatism in family planning and in. Uh, one's outlook in many ways it's benign in the way that it's applicable to individual choices so i can see why he can kind of slickly get away with it in, in terms of what's next in when when we think of other um 
when we think of other atheistic, non-theistic content creators, what, how have they chimed in on this? Um, I, I can't believe I'm going to say this. I haven't even thought of this name in forever. But like, let's uh, has PZ Myers ever faced any sort of backlash for his, you know, speech in regards to the things of this matter? Has there anything been comparable to this in terms of its scale or even just in the content they're in? Have we, I mean, I'm confident this isn't the only free speech outrage that's been taking place in the humanistic, non-theistic, atheistic community. No, you're completely right about that. This is certainly not the only debate about free speech and its meanings that we've had within sort of organized atheism, skepticism, and humanism. In fact, freedom of speech and freedom of inquiry is one of the founding and I would say kind of definitional values of the free thought community. It's called the free thought community by many people, and it's right there in the name. We care about people's freedom to have and to express and to explore thoughts and ideas. And as I've said, I think that is an extraordinarily important value. It's not the only one. It has to be balanced sometimes with other values, but it is an extremely important value, and to the extent that our community upholds that value in an intelligent and balanced way, that's a good thing. But I think that something that I've seen increasingly in the community is a split between those who recognize that freedom of thought and freedom of inquiry is supposed to enhance human flourishing. That is the point of it. That's why we promote it. And that it is supposed to be engaged in responsibly in a community with the aim of developing better ideas that help us live together in a better way. That's the point of free thinking. That's what we're supposed to get out of it. And people who see it as a sort of isolated Trump value that is over and above every other consideration in every circumstance, such that in any situation, the only question that needs to be asked is, is this individual allowed to say exactly what they want to say to whoever they want to say it in whatever space they want at whatever time? And that, I think, is an incredibly reductive understanding of free thought and freedom of speech, but it is an increasingly popular one among a subset of the free thought community who I think are feeling like their ability to explore ideas, particularly some controversial ideas about gender, about race, about other things, is being limited by the social pushback they receive when they talk about those things. So, for instance, you'll have someone make a post that is insensitive or thoughtless in some way, and they'll receive tons of sometimes quite forceful pushback about that, and they will express their view that their freedom of speech is being trampled and they can't even, they're afraid to say what they really want to say or what they really think because the environment is extremely hostile to their ideas. There's not nothing to be worried about there. The stigmatization of ideas can chill intellectual inquiry, and we don't ever want to become cultish in our thinking. We never want to get to a point where people are excommunicated from the human community forever for expressing a bad, dangerous, or even oppressive idea. That's not the sort of culture I want to live in. I do want to be open to people expressing ideas and 
being able to make mistakes with their thinking and being able to say things that are offensive or harmful and to be shown how and be welcomed back into the community. But generally what I see happening are people saying things that are deeply hurtful or deeply politically damaging and then being extraordinarily surprised, upset, or even outraged when other people express their thoughts about what they have said. So you'll see this a fair amount with Jordan Peterson on YouTube or what have you, where he really came to prominence most recently when he spoke out very forcefully against non-discrimination legislation that was supposed to protect trans people in Canada. That is what made him famous, a viral YouTube video about him speaking against those protections. Now, Jordan Peterson's supporters will tweet at me endlessly, like they always do when I say this, that say he wasn't against the protections. Well, he, he was there speaking to the committee who was considering the law and he was opposing the law. So he, I think he was against those protections in the form that they took because he, he took it as an infringement upon people's freedom of speech, which I think is completely absurd interpretation of that every legal authority relevant to that case said was an absurd interpretation. But he, despite being an academic of some standing with reasonable qualifications in various fields, nonetheless took this absurd interpretation of the law and promoted it and became famous because of it and seems to not understand that the same freedom that allows him to go and speak about trans issues to a committee of Canadian politicians or at events that he's speaking at to say to him what they think about what he has said and how the views he expressed harm them and affect their lives. And it's this strange double standard where people who say they're championing freedom of speech nonetheless want other people not to say what they think about their words. I mean, another example of this was when the New York lawyer, whose name escapes me now, um, harassed a number of individuals for speaking Spanish to customers in, I think, a Whole Foods in New York, and got a huge backlash on Twitter, and he was filmed doing this, and the, and the video went viral, and he got a big backlash on Twitter, and people, reporters camped outside his house, and they sent a mariachi band, some activists, to sing in Spanish outside his house and things like that. And people somehow think this is, a, some people, a, a limitation on his freedom of speech, when in fact it is the free expression of the views of people who disagree with him. Now, I, I agree we have to be careful about this. It's possible to create a culture in which there is a sort of stigmatizing mob that prevents people from expressing their views and chills public discussion. And we do have to be aware of that danger. But I don't think that that is the major danger that we face as a society when we're talking about issues of race or ethnicity or gender. I think that the bigger issue is that we have not openly spoken about the effects of oppressive structures, practices, behaviors, etc., on people who are harmed by them for far too long. 
and that the opening of the conversation such that people who are harmed by these things feel empowered to say how they are harmed is a good thing. That that is a redressing of an imbalance that has been historic and extraordinarily harmful. So I think that the intellectual dark web is wrong. They have misunderstood what the real social challenge is at this moment, and they're fighting the wrong fight. In, in many ways, looking back and thinking about it, I'm, I think that there needs to be some form of restorative justice, even with those who are misspeaking, ill-equipped to gauge an issue, especially one of oppressing a segment of, of a population, uh, dealing with vulnerable populations, and only addressing it in a very um, vapid, myopic, or um, personally, uh, like too um, customized of a personal lens to really actually relate to someone. And I think that's the issue is how does one communicate with efficacy? I draw to you because I, I feel that you're learned, you're very good with your diction and how you uh, go about your speech and rhetoric. Um, I can compliment you on that because you know you've studied how to do that so on and so forth in the same context that could diminish a young person of color's attitude towards oneself because in many ways it brings about the general perception that that is lacking in that population. And, and there are many of these nuances that inform society. What I want to know is in the humanistic community, I'm thinking like going back with, uh, with Richard Dawkins uh, talking and talking down Rebecca Watson years ago regarding an encounter in an elevator. This was in my time when I was in college, uh, one of the few issues where I had to sit down and learn from others as they intervened on my perception of what took place because I saw it as very benign. I, did, I was very dismissive. And I welcome any criticism from anyone anywhere to say that I was a piece of shit at that time because I assure you I was. And in doing so, I'm thinking there are instances where in the atheist, not theistic communities where they skew very white, skews very male. And when you have someone advocating for free thought in a way that is empowering to young men and women overseas um, in nations where uh, free thought is challenged, but whether through autocracy, uh, kleptocracy, um, just uh, military states, and, and in many ways, it, it, it's a value to behold. How do problematic people advocate for universal values while neglecting the tasks, the burdens, and the challenges at their own doorstep? Well, I think the short answer to that question is that they can't, not with any real authority. I think that the first thing you have to do if you want to talk about universal values, and I think we should talk about universal values, I think there are universal real moral values and responsibilities that we have to each other that we should take seriously. But the first thing we can do instead of trying to tell other nations or other communities how to live is, see, is look at how we are living and see what we can do in our own immediate spheres of influence. One of the most disturbing things about the modern 
kind of late 20th and early 21st century free thought movement has been its tendency to point fingers at distant cultures and countries and say, these are all the terrible things that are happening there and have a very uncritical attitude towards the culture in which we are living ourselves. And I don't think that's morally defensible. I don't mean to say that there aren't terrible oppressions existing elsewhere in the world. Of course there are, and it is right to speak about them, but I think we'll have much more moral authority to do so if we've looked in our own neighborhoods and communities and started to work on those. I mean, in a way, this discussion is not just being had within the free thought community. I know it's being had within major human rights organizations. For instance, I have some friends who work or worked with Amnesty International, and I know that Amnesty International found it quite challenging when some of its employees wanted to come to Ferguson and St. Louis, Missouri to work on racial justice issues here where I live now because they had seen their mission more in terms of intervening overseas where they saw what I suppose they thought were more egregious human rights abuses than the ones that exist in the United States. But I think that the activists who encouraged Amnesty to look at human rights abuses in the United States were doing something very wise because I think it bolsters the moral authority of that organization when it's willing to say, you know, it's not just developing and poor countries which have human rights abuses. They exist in every wealthy democracy in the West as well. And we have to be honest about that and we have to work on that. And I really look forward to a day where humanists are people who are almost most self-critical. Well, you look at our own communities and see where the deficits are there and what we could do better and start working on those as a first instance before we turn our eyes to Muslim theocracies abroad, which have many challenges, of course. And I think that that would give us greater moral authority. I think that I do want to address something that you said that I thought was important about restorative justice, because I think that all true justice is restorative. And if there is a concern I have about contemporary activist culture that I'm deeply embedded in and work, I work alongside contemporary, I am a contemporary activist. I'm a millennial, just about. I just turned 36 this week. So I am just about uh, the oldest you can be and still be a millennial. So I'm part of contemporary activist culture myself. But I think it's important to be self-critical about that too and not to think we've got everything right. And one of the things that worries me somewhat is that we have what can be sometimes a rather punitive culture, which sort of excommunicates people if they do or say something wrong and doesn't offer a very clear path to reintegration in the community. There's a psychologist whose name I forget right now who writes about the difference between stigmatizing shame, which excludes someone from a community and makes them feel bad about themselves as a person, and reintegrative shame, which says that a behavior is wrong, but if you modify your behavior in these ways, you'll be welcomed back into the community. And I think that activists today should get better at distinguishing between when they're doing stigmatization, which I think is wrong and harmful and um, dehumanizing, 
and when they they can offer a path to reintegration where we can say you did a bad thing that doesn't mean you're a bad person and we want you still to be part of our community and i don't know that we always get that right and i think that that aspect of what we're doing is particularly important honestly when we talk about the attraction that intellectual dark web figures have for many people i i do think honestly and here's where i might upset some of my fellow activists but i think it's true anyway i think it's important to explore i do think that people like sam harris and jordan peterson and and dave rubin who point to a sort of intolerance and intellectual intolerance um or, as they would put it on the left are pointing to a real phenomenon there is something rigid about the way of thinking that some activist groups and organizations promote and that rigidity i think makes it difficult for people who are not inside those groups who don't know the right terminology who don't have the kind of structural understanding of power privilege and oppression that those groups promote can make it difficult for those people to enter those spaces and feel welcome and i think that one thing that activists could do that would be extraordinarily effective both in getting more people involved in the activism that's trying to reshape this country and also kind of reducing the attractiveness of intellectual dark web figures would be to create more welcoming on ramps into the activist community and the sort of contemporary activist ideology that exists today places where people can ask questions without worrying about whether they're going to offend people places where people can learn what the correct terminology is and why it's important places where people will be treated as if they are well intentioned and acting in good faith to begin with and will be helped to understand the way that we see the world every movement needs that to get more people involved and sometimes i worry that we're not doing enough of that that we are a little forbidding in fact people tell me that they tell me that they're afraid to ask their questions because they don't want to get a barrage of unfriendly responses even though the questions were asked in good faith and i totally understand that fear i felt it myself and i think a lot of activists would say well get over it you know just ask the question take the aggressive response and then deal and that's fine for some of us who have that sort of emotional fortitude and who have been able to develop a thick skin over time but some people are not there yet and i think that it it makes perfect sense or make our movement stronger to be more welcoming of people who aren't there yet but who are on a good faith journey so one thing that comes into play here is a lot of activists have employed and and mind you i i identify with these terms however at times i feel that these terms can become more purposive rather than um definitional so i think of stuff like emotional labor where to respond to a question from someone that is seemingly oppressive or is in themselves ignorant of the oppression of the person they're speaking to and then engaging in a line of questioning that inherently although albeit maybe ignorantly or unknowingly 
questions innately their um, their humanity in some instances. Uh, I know that I'm framing it, so it's not I'm not even asking a real question. But let's just say like I'm accustomed to listening, you know, from my own background and experience as an immigrant from Latin America and Paraguay, despite having entirely European traits. Growing up as a kid, I've been able to see with my own eyes friends of mine try on in some delight as though they were like tasting chocolate for the first time, trying on the word spick because my name is reminiscent of that culture. It is of Latin America and is of Spain. So in many ways, there's a taboo where they felt a permissibility given my European features. So in many ways, there. I can understand why some people, activists, are hesitant, but I'm, you know, perhaps I'm more accustomed to a certain fortitude. Maybe I'm accustomed to us to uh, regular uh, bouts of taboo-breaking humor. But ultimately, how does one ebb and flow? How does one properly negotiate a faith, uh, a space of good faith amongst a coalition of multiracial uh, community members? Well, I'm not going to tell anyone else how to do it, but I'll say a little bit about how I approach this stuff because I've thought a fair amount about it and I think it's important. Uh, I remember vividly some of my early gay rights activism soon after I came out of the closet when I was a grad student at Harvard. Um, and I started working with an organization called Speak Out Boston, which has been around for quite some time and basically sets organizations, schools, companies, nonprofits, stuff like that, up with speakers who are members of the LGBTQIA plus community. And we would go to the institution that was hosting us. We would each tell a short story about our lives as a queer person. And then we would take the questions from the audience and one of our rules was that people could ask any question. We didn't promise to answer any question that they asked, but people could, without fear, ask any question that was on their mind. And sometimes people would ask questions in a way that I would think was offensive or hurtful. And sometimes we would say, you know, phrasing that question in that way is going to often be considered offensive or hurtful by people. But here's what I think you meant by that question, and, and here's an answer. And there was something extremely healing about that work. It wasn't for everyone, and I'm not suggesting everyone should do it, but there was something very powerful about it for everyone involved, because very often it was the only time people had a structured opportunity to learn about people different to them in an important way without having to worry too much about what the impact even of expressing their curiosity would be. And I think that those spaces, if you can create them, where people can honestly ask a question and honestly give a response, can be very powerful to helping people learn how to navigate difference. I think another very powerful thing is storytelling itself. I remember that one of the most powerful events that we hosted at the Ethical Society of St. Louis uh, in the aftermath of Mike Brown's shooting was an event called Mother to Mother, which simply brought mothers of black sons 
together on stage to tell stories about their experience raising black boys. And there was something profoundly moving about hearing the details of other people's lives, details that if you were a white person, if you don't have black children, you would never maybe imagine. And I am a real believer in the power of personal storytelling to reach people and to help people understand and navigate difference better. It's not magic. Like none of this work that activists and communities can do will magically change people's hearts and make us live in a utopia where everyone understands each other. But I do believe that in the power of human relationships and connections between people to potentially profoundly change how we understand each other and to help us live together better. Facing difference, establishing rapport, allowing for reasonable conflict resolution, restorative justice is a I think those are amazing parameters for any community to thrive and to move forward. I like, uh, I want to go back to something you said earlier. Um, we're about 15 minutes out. You, you were talking about um, not wanting to make it a cult. I know that as uh, in many ways, I feel that cults have very different, uh, uh, you know, th they operate differently. Kind of how to describe it. Exclusionary, uh, punitive, conditioning and they have this in and out group dynamic that in studying anthropology you realize that in many ways that bolsters belonging between either a cultural group or any sort of group that has any sort of mission or purpose in your experience how do cults differentiate between uh religions not to suggest that they're one and the same but i i understand that in some practices there are similar instances where you can excommunicate on the basis of this dissenting religious belief. And there are cults that do something similar, although in some ways one could also argue that it's kind of, um, it, it depends on to what extent. Some ex-cult members are excommunicated due to the extent for causing dissent within that cult. Some want to keep certain members in because they require either whether it be labor um, or just they have that controlling nature in your personal opinion is excommunication exiling is this a form of authoritarianism or is this a form of um, unethical conditioning what is the dynamic emotional play that goes into excommunicating or exiling someone on the basis of not complying or submitting to one's thought process or rule? Well, that's a big question. I mean, firstly, I totally agree with you in saying that while there is often an overlap between religion and cults, they're not the same thing. And I think that that is something that some atheists and particularly movement atheists misunderstand. The idea that any religious community or sometimes any community at all is inherently cultish is wrong, I think. I think of cults as sort of at the extreme end of a scale of communal activity and practice where the in-group bonding is very, very strong and the social pressure used to keep people in the community 
and to delineate who is in and who is out of the community is extremely ferocious. And you can have communities which are cultish, which are religious, a lot of them are, and which are not religious. There are definitely political cults. Like there are, you know, the, Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson and those sorts of people are correct in saying there are such things as left-wing political cults. There are also right-wing political cults, and there are tons of different types of political cults. There are groups which have incredibly strong in-group bonding mechanisms and very clear delineations between who is and who is not inside the group, and usually penalties for being outside of the group and privileges for being inside of the group. To some extent, I think of it as a scale because to some extent, any community has some of those features. Like the Ethical Society of St. Louis, you know, we are definitely not a cult. We're in a way very anti-cultish, but there are still certain benefits that you get if you're a member of our community that you don't get if you're not in our community. There are still certain ways that we try and reinforce the sense that we're a community of people who are connected to each other, and we wouldn't be a very good congregation if we weren't. In some ways, I think that we should increase the level in which we make people feel connected to each other, because I think that that might make our community stronger. But I do genuinely view it as a quite long scale where, you know, at one end, you've got things like Scientology or extremely small uh, evangelical Christian communities, which are sometimes very, very cultish. Um, and on another scale, you have sort of the lone individual. There's a lot of space in between there for non cultish communities and I think that's the sort of healthy zone that we want to explore when we're creating humanist communities. In terms of excommunication specifically, I think that that term does, at least in my mind, have a, an authoritarian connotation simply because, at least in my understanding, it specifically refers to people who are exiled from a community because of a sort of heretical thought that they have, a, a set of ideas that is not within the dogma of the community. There would be no such thing as excommunication within a, an ethical society, for instance, because we are an anti-dogmatic, non-scriptural, non-creedal congregation. There's really no set of ideas per se that would on their own lead to you being sort of exiled from the community. As I say that, I'm thinking, well, what, what then are the limits of participation in our community? And, and us, instead of being gathered together around a set of ideas or a particular teacher or a particular text, we gather together around a set of values. And it would be possible to get yourself um, asked to leave the community if your behavior didn't consistently display those values. So, for instance, if you were consistently promoting ideas that did not value the dignity of every person, if you were an explicit racist or something like that, then you wouldn't be able to be a member of an ethical society. You couldn't be, you know, simultaneously a member of the Nazi party and a member of an ethical society because the values of those two organizations are diametrically opposed from one another. But I still don't think that would quite be an excommunication because it wouldn't be so much that we were declaring a certain set of ideas heretical and unacceptable to think. It would more be that these ideas did not represent the values around which our community is organized. And so there isn't compatibility there. And we think those ideas are evil and wrong. 
So I don't think that's an excommunication, but I, I don't know. I could be just being too generous to my own community. So uh, we're, I think we're like about eight minutes, uh, seven minutes. Uh, uh, let's end on this. Uh, when I was when I was um, at Harvard University Extension School, I was delighted to take a class uh, that was in conjunction with the Berkman Klein Center. Well, now the Berkman Klein Center. Prior to that, was just the Berkman Center, uh, and I was able to work with creating. You know, I, I like to think that you know this podcast somewhat came about more or less during that class because I did a project on online churches, and in doing some of that academic coursework. I started to have the um, belief that I feel like we're that religion, uh, these communal experiences, the lived the 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 the, the um, internal spiritual life of some people is going to retreat further and further into one's mind and personality, but also in the way that communication technologies can extend to how we internally spiritualize our understanding or life in this earth um is are humanists engaging in what you can consider online expressions of their faith or online expressions of their search or online expressions of their ethical um flourishing oh yeah absolutely in a way organized atheism particularly but humanism as well more broadly is one of the most powerful, quotes religious communities online. One of the reasons why we're having all these fights about Patreon and YouTube and such like is that many of our content creators became famous on the internet and really only exist on the internet in a certain way. And there are a healthy network of blogs and YouTube channels and things like that exploring atheism and humanism. I will say that at least I'm hoping to start a YouTube channel myself this year. And one of the reasons why I want to do that is that I do find that there's a dearth of content that expresses positive humanist values and it addresses the questions of how to live life given a humanist worldview, as opposed to criticizing other perspectives or engaging in fights with other creators, right? There's a lot of kind of reactive content out there on the internet for humanists, but there's a not a huge amount of educational content that just explores what does it mean to live life as a humanist in the 21st century? And I think there needs to be more of that, and that's why I'm hopefully going to start to create it. Um, how could my listeners reach you? How can they learn more about the ethical society? Where would you like our listeners to learn more about you? Oh, thanks for asking. Yeah, you can find more about the Ethical Society of St. Louis at ethicalstl.org. So that's ethical, like being good, and then stl, like St. Louis, .org. That's our website, and it has not only description of what the Ethical Society is and tons of cool photos and information about when and where we meet if you're in the St. Louis area. Awesome. Well, link uh, to our podcast archive, which you can also find on. Yeah. Oh, my apologies. I accidentally interjected. Oh, you can continue that. Um, so, 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 so where can we get um, links to your podcast archive? Yeah, so that's on the website, but you can also find it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. 
If you just search Ethical Society of St. Louis, you'll find it. And that has recordings from our Sunday, our equivalent of Sunday services for many, many years. So it's literally hundreds of half an hour long talks about life from a humanist perspective. It is, I think, honestly, one of the best and longest running humanist podcasts that no one knows about in the world because it's got tons of different voices talking about tons of different topics. How do we find meaning? How do we respond to suffering? What does it mean to um, explore death as a humanist or an atheist? Um, how can we support each other through life? Uh, how do we find wonder and joy? It's just got so many different topics all explored from a humanist perspective. And we have many listeners from all around the world who engage in our community by listening to the podcast. So that's a great place. If you want to read more of my writing, you can find me at the Patheos Blog Network. My blog is called Temple of the Future. So if you do a search for that name, you'll find it. I'm not sure I'm going to continue writing under that exact title for too much longer. But if you look for that now, you'll find uh, all the blog content that I've sporadically written over the past few years. And if you want to get in touch, you can always do so through the Ethical Society's website or on Twitter, where I am at JFLCroft, at J-F-L-C-R-O-F-T. Awesome. Thank you so much. So I'd like to thank uh, Dr. James Fahey Croft. Is that correct? Cry. Awesome. Cry. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So I'd like to thank Dr. James Fahey Croft for coming on the Gwowcast. I'd like to thank my listeners for tuning in. Thank you so much, James. I hope to have you on soon. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. This episode was recorded at Boston Free Radio at the Somerville Media Center at Union Square. If you'd like to hear the hip-hop music that we're playing on our program, tune in on Boston Free Radio, Saturdays from 3 p.m. to 4 p.m. You can listen to the music live on Boston Free Radio. If you are unable to do so, don't fret. We have our Spotify playlist shown early on our Patreon. Patreon.com slash GSHamlin for your Gwowcast needs. Come on in and check out our Patreon. <laughs>